And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I am Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. What are we reading this week, Harmony? We are reading a poem by Bohi Koth. We're reading a poem by her. And she is a popular poet. She has written several poetry collections, including Hagar Poems and Emails from Shazard, which I'm mispronouncing. And most prominently, I've seen her mentioned a lot for her novel, The Girl in the Tangerine Scarf. She got her PhD at Rutgers in comparative literature, which is pretty cool because that's where I go now. She's also written in nonfiction. She's a professor of English at the University of Arkansas, and she writes a lot about Arab and Muslim culture in the United States, and she grew up in the Midwest, but her family is from Damascus, Syria. So we're reading her today, even though she writes a lot about Islam, we're reading her today because she's also written a little bit about Christianity, because if you know anything about the Abrahamic religions, they all kind of build off of one another. Judaism's first, Christianity comes along, and then Islam comes along. So all of, a lot of those stories are within every text, especially Islam, because that is the latest religion. And the poem that we're reading today is called Miriam's Labor. This is true. These, these are all facts. Do you have any first impressions from this poem, Maggie, before we go ahead and read it? I think that something that has struck me about some of these texts that I feel like has been is like a theme here that's almost answered to a certain extent is in Book of Longings and in The Passion of Mary Magdalene. Because hello, if this is your first episode here, we're the last episode in the series at this point. Uh, (laughs) Go back, start with the first uh, Passion of Mary Magdalene episode. But there has been so much questioning, I feel like, as I know happens for everyone about why there is pain and suffering and what causes that and God's relationship to all of those things. And the two novels we read really questioned all of that. And this poem also deals with that in the form of the pain and suffering that women go through in um, that cis women go through in childbirth. Uh, But instead of the question, God is kind of framed as the answer here, which I think is interesting. I think in some ways this is probably closer to like a devotional text potentially than the other two mediums that or the other two texts that we've dealt with but something about that to me feels congruent I don't know what it is but I feel like poetry can be really really spiritual for people and is as much as it's crafted it's also often very personal I think in a way that sometimes novels aren't necessarily because sometimes when you're writing poetry the speaker can be you and things like that. So I don't know if that made any sense, but 
I, I see relations to the other two texts that we read, but this person, this author has sort of a different take on similar themes. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. One of the things I noticed too is that while Kaf grew up in Western society, essentially, you know, she she isn't inherently as much of a Westerner, I guess, as our other two authors are because her family is from Syria and she writes a lot about this dynamic in her work about being kind of of two places, it seems. Um, but both of our other authors in Passion of Mary Magdalene and in Book of Longings are two white women who have tried to reclaim the religion of Christianity for themselves. And so I think that maybe I'd, maybe that has to do with some of these themes about like not knowing what God is or whether God has their best interests at heart. Um, and I don't know Kopf's religion, religious background. I don't know how much religion was um, thrown at her versus our other two authors. So maybe that has something to do with the more devotional nature. Do you want to go ahead and read the poem now? Sure. Okay. Who do you want to start? You can start. Marianne is giving birth. Her face is sweaty like a laborer. Like a marathon runner. God is her doula massaging. The small of her back with a tennis ball. Everyone else has left her. Honey, you can do this, she says. You and your body know how. Miriam understands this pain. That comes in waves like the ocean. Rises, rises, then releases her. She does not lie down, she stands up. She is not ill from what she bears. She is powerful. She is not patient, she is purposeful. She is not second, she is self. She is soul and body, she is one. She surfs the pain. She swims the crest. She lives in it. She flows with it. She has been training for it. She doesn't beg the pain to go away. It is her guide in the desert, not her enemy. It is her voice in the wilderness. Calling here, now, truth, life, be. Miriam gets the double vision of woman. In labor, seeing things as they are. And as they more deeply can be. Everything gains epic dimensions, opens. Panting, fully dilated, mantra chanting. Pelvic rocking, crowning. Mariam takes what she needs. From the river, the tree. She is here now, truth, life. Be and it is, Mariam's face. Is flush with victory. Wow, that's really pretty. I um, I like it better reading it out loud. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's funny. So what are what are some of the things that you've noticed now that we've read it a second time together? I think that there's something I think that there's something powerful about the assertion that pain in that way can be a guide and it doesn't have to be your enemy because I think that and we this is obviously a very cisgendered based poem because uh Miriam, as far as we're aware, is Mary from the Bible, but it's talking about the fact that her body isn't her betrayer, even though it hurts, you know, it's still her power, and like this is a gift that she has, which I think in some cases plays into a lot of like stereotypes about womanhood and what it means to be a mother that I think we probably need to unpack. But 
simultaneously, I feel like there is a certain level of empowerment in like riding out that specific kind of pain and feeling like you come out of it victorious. I agree. I think that in our other theological questionings with the Passion of Mary Magdalene and with Sue Monk Kids, the Book of Longings, we got a more pessimistic view, I think, towards pain and suffering. And this is really an embracing of it. And I also think that's really interesting because as Maggie pointed out, we're talking about Mother Mary and what we know from that Bible story right now, right, is that like this is before she's given birth to Jesus. So she and what's his name? What's Mary's husband's name? Joseph. Joseph. Yeah, she and Joseph have been traveling all this long way and she's going to go ahead and give birth in a manger, right? Like that's the story surrounding Jesus's birth. But also Jesus is like the Lord and Savior. And that I think even though we're not focusing on any sort of male deities or male worship in this poem, I think the fact that she is giving birth to this like great, beautiful kind of chosen thing is interesting and is flipped in a really empowering way here. Does that make sense? It does. And I totally agree with you. It like, it, it, it that theme I think specifically comes at the end when they talk about the fact that she sees the double vision of women in labor seeing things as deeply seeing things as they are and as they can more deeply be you know everything gains epic dimensions and it opens and I mean that's obviously partially a physical description right like uh, in comparison, everything down there is gaining epic dimensions. But I think it's also talking about this idea of like possibility potentially when you give birth that your child could be anything. And in Mary's case was like the Messiah essentially and how you can see all the possibility in the world in this one moment as you're like creating, birthing new life. Yeah. Yeah, it's a... I, I know you and I have talked about this before, but um, I've been kind of pessimistic about the idea of like labor and childbirth. And Maggie has rightfully pointed out to me that when you have more negative narratives about what childbirth is like, it ends up being a more negative experience for people involved. Mm-hmm. I think that plays into what we're seeing here because this is a rough and horrible experience, but it is full of possibility and life and Mary becomes super powerful. She becomes God herself. She becomes body, self, truth, right? Mm -hmm. Like all of these things, she is one and one is capitalized for our listeners. If you haven't read this poem. So like she is becoming God. All of these things are used to describe a monotheistic God. I don't know. And also the idea of God being there to support her. Yeah, as the doula. As the doula, yeah. Like, she's there. Like, she's not making anything easier, but she's there. And this faith is bringing Mary along and making this a triumphant moment. It's compared at one point like a marathon runner, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is something she's struggling towards, but... People run marathons because they think it's fun. It's an achievement. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think something interesting here too is that, you know, we're adapting the story of Mary here, but I think that it's not too far to say either that the author is really making Mary in some ways in every person for people who go through this because there's lots of contemporary modern imagery mixed in with the more ancient imagery as well. Like like God is a doula with a tennis ball on your hips or the marathon runner. But then when you get that mixed in with like your guide in the desert, it feels like a moment where everything is coming together. Like time is coming together. The speaker is coming together with God becoming God. And I feel like it showcases potential that the speaker feels that everyone who goes through this experience has. Um, to like become bigger than yourself. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you literally have another human being inside of you. Um, I think though, sorry, not to cut you off. Um, I think though that that's actually also really interesting with the emphasis on she is soul and body. She is one. Because so often I think that there are narratives around pregnancy that... Um, I mean, revolve and rightfully so around the fact that like you're essentially living with a second person inside of you. And that person can often feel like a parasite because they're just taking up all of your energy and resources. I think especially at the beginning and end from what I have been told many times. So I think that there's something like I've I've heard a lot of my friends or people I know who have been pregnant express the fact that they feel like they aren't just one. And I think that there's also something really beautiful about the idea of coming back to yourself as yourself whole. Uh, And it doesn't like knock the experience, I'm sure, of, you know, carrying another human. But I think that there's something to celebrate there about the fact that like you as one are whole and enough, um, even outside of all of this other stuff that's going on. That's where her power is as body and soul in one. Yeah. And trying to, your description of that makes me think more of like a merging, like these two people are becoming one. And I see that in comparison to like her, like if we've established that she is becoming God here. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the spiritual rhetoric I've read and seen has a lot to do with this idea of wholeness and oneness. And like, there's a little piece of God in each and every one of you, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Not to get too corny, but like, that's, I I think that's an idea, right? That like humanity is one, humanity is whole. So as the life giver, if she is being God, like she it feels weird to say because obviously your child is a separate entity and, you know, it's wrong to um, assume that your child just like is an extension of you. But I think that that's kind of the imagery that it's playing with. Like she is, this is her own flesh and blood. This is her, this other being, right? And they are coming together in this way. Yeah, which is also extra interesting because she's in labor. So technically they're coming apart for the first time. Yeah. Um yeah, that is that's super interesting. But maybe they're they're both going through this experience, right? Like she is the one giving life and something else is like becoming life. Yeah, receiving it. There's still that connection even as they're being separated, which psychologically is true, right? The first place that doctors tend to put babies unless there's something happening medically 
is straight onto the person who birthed them's chest, right? Because that connection is really important. And that skin to skin bonding is like one of the most important things that you can do to help babies settle into the fact that they have just come out of the swimming pool, essentially. Um, And like that connection it's a it's a huge seismic shift, right? To no longer be two as one in one body, but to then still also be extraordinarily codependent on each other because newborns are as codependent as one could be on their caregivers, especially if you do choose to go the route of like breastfeeding and things like that, because then you are it, your baby's only source of food. And like, I, I can see how that separation mentally would be harder, you know? Yeah, I don't see anything in the poem that really talks about the baby at all. Like, we're talking about labor, so I don't want to get too caught up. Well, I guess the crowning, but no, yeah, there's nothing really in here that I see that, like, refers to this little entity that she is giving birth to. And I think that that's really powerful and interesting, too, and works well because I think that this poem is also just the metaphor for living just to tie it back to the beginning what we were talking about a little bit this idea that like pain life is suffering right Mm. (laughs) and life is painful and so why would a loving caring god let us live in a world in which life is suffering Mm. this narrative seems to be life is suffering and that's good and it's okay to suffer because it means that we achieve and we've lived. Like you can't really live without this. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, we've talked about this eight, a million times before in general, but it's always dangerous to just like equate suffering with like eventual triumph and having lived because that can really invalidate people's experiences. But I, I think potentially in this specific set of circumstances that probably can be more apt is, you know, suffering that often ends in probably a feeling of triumph, right? Because you've done it and you've endured. Um, And I don't want to knock the experiences of mothers who have had bad labors or who, you know, were severely injured by their labors or um, even potentially passed away. But for the majority of people in the U.S. at the very least, that's that number is starting. Actually, you know, that's a lie. The U.S. has terrible maternal morality, mortality rates. Um, anyways, what I was saying was that like those disclaimers aside, I can see why this specific kind of suffering lends itself to this kind of messaging about power and triumph through the pain and suffering. Um, because in theory, that's I think what it's meant to do, right? When everything, when, when everything does sort of work the way it's supposed to, as God tells Miriam at the beginning, you know, you suffer, but then you succeed. And that's the, the order of things. That's the order of operations. Before we like wrap up this poem, I really want to talk about the fact that God here is placed as a woman mm-hmm. from, cause we haven't explicitly talked about that at all. And I wanted to know what you think the importance of that is. Well, I think there's probably a couple of things happening there. I think that there is a certain level of which cis women often lean on other cis women when they're giving birth because um, 
it's like a uniquely, it, it, it feels like a shared experience, I think, often. And uh, trans men are often left out of that sort of solidarity, which is a different podcast episode, uh, generally speaking, but is worth pointing out. So I feel like on one hand, that like makes sense, right? Why would you want God as a man here in this specific moment, sort of looking over a suffering that like he can never actually understand, I think is the key. But when you position God as a woman, you're making the assumption that she as deity understands what you're going through because she is the same, you know, like you're, you're, you're born of the same kind of, um, we're supposed to be born in God's image. So like, yeah, that that's a true matching for, for Miriam of, of her image. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, you know, I think that there's also a lot of, I mean, stereotypes or, or not, or for whatever reason, like lots of people who work in jobs where they end up helping people give birth do tend to be women and I feel like that for a lot of people is what like a safe, comforting space in birth feels like. This is totally anecdotal. So like, it's definitely not everyone's experience, but generally speaking, you know, the people that you want in your delivery room from what I've heard is like your partner. And if anyone else, it's like your mom or maybe your sister or somebody else who has an idea of what's actually happening to you. Because I think that in the face of unspeakable pain, that's what we all seek out, right? Is somebody who can understand and empathize. And I think that that's probably what a lot of people seek out in God in general is like understanding, right? Understanding and absolution. And I feel like this is one of those like ideal places that you would, that you would want those things. And you would want to feel like you match with your God and that they just understand. And I feel like positioning God as a man here wouldn't get that across and wouldn't be like, I don't know. I just feel like it wouldn't match up with the situation. Yeah. I think that's really interesting too, because again, as Maggie and I have talked ad nauseum, if you've listened to our podcast before, neither of us are really Christians and we're not really heavily knowledgeable about Christian stories and storytelling or, or culture. But in many cultures of many different faiths, and I'm thinking of like a lot of Catholicism, especially women do tend to like we have images of Mother Mary or of various saints to help protect us during labor. I'm sure that there are people calling in the Christian God too, uh, who is often presented as male. But like, when you think of motherhood, when you pray about like motherhood and labor there's often a a female base to it um Mm -hmm. so that's interesting i also think too one of the things that we look for when we're looking at god that i guess has been re-highlighted to me through our readings in in these works that are like taking these different twists on Christian mythology is is comfort, right? Like that's what religion is for a lot of people. That's what faith is. It's this idea that like everything is going to be okay and the world is inherently good for a lot of people, right? Like the world has to be good because somebody created it to be good, mm-hmm. even if it feels like chaos. And I think I see God doing that too here in this story. 
God is there to provide comfort and backing. She's not there to take the pain away, but she's there to just give you like another hand to hold. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's interesting too, because part of the, I think part of what emphasizes the fact that Miriam and God kind of become one here is the section that starts. She does not lie down. She stands up in which the author very much starts blending who she is. And it's only after she has sort of that hand to hold that she's that the poem shifts from like how she's dealing with the pain to like a place of power. Um, And it's like, God gives her that extra push to stand up and feel powerful and not feel ill and feel like she has a handle on what's happening. And I feel like that makes sense because I feel like the basis of all religions is so that you feel like you have a handle on life and why stuff happens to you and why we're here. There's other stuff too, you know, like what happens when we die, of course. But I feel like some of those first things are like core tenets as to why we're looking for God to begin with. Yeah. And I mean, even the dying thing, like it's the same thing. It's why, why do people have to die? What mm-hmm. happens when you die? Like it's, it's there to answer the great unknown. Yeah, it's true. Is there anything else you want to say about this poem before we wrap up? Um, I guess my final sentiment with it is that I think that, you know, wrapping up this sort of stretch that we did that was just thinking about sort of Christian mythology, it was really nice to read two narratives that really complicate that. But I think as outsiders to a religion, it's also nice to read something that feels a little bit more devotional and see some of that strength and power that somebody gets from religion. Because I think that sometimes... I don't know, maybe this is just me, but as somebody who isn't religious, when I see other people question, like, I feel like I slot into that more naturally, because obviously I have questions, because that's not my faith, and I I don't believe. And so I think it's also just good to take the flip side too, and see us, even if it's short, just a narrative that's like, dependent on God, because as much as I think it's responsible to, to question faith and what you're taught, I also understand that the point of it is to get you through moments like this and to have something to believe in. So it's not really a comment on the poem itself, so to speak, but I do think it's a nice compliment to the other things that we've read that are sort of in the same canon. I think that's really important. We haven't done like a big wrap up because we, we've spent, let's see, like six, six episodes now. Yeah. On Christian mythology. And I think that's interesting because I have, a slightly different experience, I think, and, and take on what we read. Both of the works that we read by previous, both of the novel works, were maybe a little bit pessimistic about the Christian God. But I saw devotion towards other types of deities who were generally female, right? For uh, Maeve, it was Isis and Bride or Bridget. And for Anna, it, or Anna, it was... Sophia, right? So like they both had these different devotional tendencies. And I think that it's interesting that we picked up on this because Maggie and I have talked about our spirituality or lack thereof. And like, I am an openly kind of spiritual human, even though I am also 
a huge skeptic and like don't really believe it when people tell me that they see ghosts and <laughs> question everything and will take the cynical stance. So yeah, like I saw both Anna and Maeve doing that. And I do think that this is positive too, because it is, this is like a true reclaiming to me of Christian mythology, because both of those characters were like, I don't think they had fully, or maybe the authors hadn't fully accepted or reclaimed that narrative for themselves. And that could be because they grew up with it. And so maybe it was kind of harmful to them. I don't know. Yeah, I see that. I think that this shows one for me where like my unconscious bias takes me as somebody who like is the opposite of harmony in that sense and is like really not a spiritual person. Um, But who believes in ghosts? I mean, kind of. Uh, but I think ghosts are fun. That, that's, that's a, a neither here or there at the moment. Um, but you're right. I think that what I was more struck by though, in those, like what I wasn't expecting to see, I guess, in these narratives when I went into them was like that specific questioning of Christian tenets. I don't know. I think by making God a woman, this poem very effectively reclaims uh, Christianity, maybe in a way that we didn't see with the other two texts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or I think, or I think maybe to your point, we saw differently with tech with those two texts because those two reclaimed sort of like their spirituality by looking to other sources, as you were sort of talking about. Whereas this one was just directly like, "Nope, I am God. God is me. We are one." Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Is this a feminist poem, Miss Mags? Yeah, I think probably. I mean, it's all about a woman like claiming, yeah, like but like (laughs) but like also taking power and claiming her own labor and you know coming coming out feeling triumphant. And I think that, that there's something powerful about that. I think that the question of whether I personally find this empowering is like separate in this case, because I'm not a mom and I'm not religious. And in many cases that is, this isn't for me, but I don't think that takes away from the fact that like at its core, this is about a woman feeling powerful in the context that she's in at that moment. Do you find it empowering? It sounds like you don't. I don't think I find it unempowering. I think I ha- I find it hard to relate given that I've never been a mother. So like, it's hard to, it's hard to comprehend, I think what that experience would be like. And I think that I don't personally find my power through like, I don't know, feeling at one with like God or the universe or things like that. That's just not me, but that doesn't mean it's not empowering for others, I guess. I just find it harder to connect directly with. I understand. I also think this is a feminist text. And I think I do kind of find it empowering, even though I'm not a mother, because it's this idea that, like, I know that we were talking, Maggie made a very good point, um, that, like, we've talked that we shouldn't just accept suffering and be like, oh, well, life is suffering and, like, that's okay and it makes you stronger because that's often used as an excuse to really um like victim blame essentially Mm -hmm. to blame the people who have had horrendous things happening to them but I think when it's something that you can get through right like I'm not not to like be like trauma porn or anything outside of trauma and horrible things life itself it's just sometimes hard, mm-hmm. even if you don't like have depression or anything like life is just kind of hard. And I think right now, 
everyone is living through a hard time in their own way. So this idea that like, it's okay for life to be hard, and that it can lead to something more rewarding is very positive and inspiring for me. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that message is definitely something I like agree with and also take comfort and power from. I just think that for me, this text is so mired in like the specific context and experience of birth that I personally find it like harder to separate that message out of. But you're right. That's definitely like the underlying thing that's happening here. What are you reading? What am I reading? I'm actually not reading anything at the moment. I'm between books. It's been a rough week and I just, I haven't had time. What about you? What are you reading? I'm reading a lot. (laughs) Primarily right now it's info literacy studies. Um, I just read a poem by, or not a poem, a short story by Julie Atusaka, which was really good. It's called, I'm going to butcher this and I'm sorry, but it's Latin. So I, I like don't really care if I then people because no one speaks Latin anymore, right? It's a it's a dead language. But um <laughs> it's called DM Purdy and it's about this author's relationship with her mother who in the narrative, this is a fictional narrative, is has Alzheimer's and um it's really good and you guys should check it out. And I'm still reading everything I was reading before, which is or maybe I'm on a new Bridgerton book, who knows? I'm still reading uh Manufacturing Consent. And I'm still reading When He Was Wicked, which is one of the Bridgerton novels. So, Do we have homework this week? Oh, we should. Yeah, we should. What's your homework? Can can I give you homework? Like very vague homework? Is that allowed? Sure, but no promises that I'll have time to do it. (laughs) I think that you, you are going through a lot of struggle right now. And so I think that you should, you should try and keep the underlying message of this poem in mind, this idea that this struggle is good for you, not to mean that you shouldn't take self-care because you definitely should and you should take breaks, but that this struggle is is good and will ultimately lead to big rewards. Thank you. I appreciate that a lot. To clarify, just because I don't want to scare anybody. <laughs> it's work struggle. There's a lot of work happening. <laughs> yeah, I'm just hella busy and there's a lot of chaotic things happening in my life, which are ultimately going to pay off and lead to good things. I just have no time to human right now. That's my current suffering. Thank you, Harmony. I appreciate that. Can I give you the same homework back? You're like in the middle of finals week and, you know, just you can do it. I believe in you. And uh, you can survive this suffering. Thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate it. Summer, or, no, Flapper Girl Summer 2021 is upon us almost. It's true. Harmony dyed her hair purple and we're, we're all systems go. <laughs> okay. Uh, what are we reading next week? We are reading Hunger by Roxanne Gay. So we will talk to you all then. All right. Bye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod 
on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.